1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the 66 to 87 podcast. I'm your host and moderator, Tom Reed, joined as always by Taylor Haas and Dave Molinari. Uh, we will be joined a little bit later in our uh, broadcast today uh, with the voice, the television voice of the Pittsburgh Penguins, Steve Mears. So look forward to having hearing his thoughts on Mike Lang's retirement and just a lot of other things about the Penguins' team. Uh, but first, guys, I one of the, not a lot of news going on right now, but we are about a month away from training camp. And this has been on my mind for a couple of days. We've discussed this briefly in the past. But I want to get your thoughts on uh, the Penguins' top line, which, of course, has been so good. Uh, in the regular season, the the past couple years, terrific, all three of these guys are terrific players. Jake Ensel, Sidney Crosby, Brian Rust, uh, left to right. Crosby, obviously, first ballot Hall of Famer when he retires, top 10 player of all time, maybe a top five player. But Sidney Crosby also has recently turned 34. He's not quite the same physically imposing guy that can get to anywhere on the ice at any point Uh, especially in the playoffs, at least in my opinion, as he was before. He makes up for it in many ways, being one of the best passers in the league. And I want to pose to you guys this question. Would you consider going into this season, given the fact that they have been eliminated from the playoffs the last three years in the first round, with an idea of tinkering with that first line, maybe switching it around, and my my thought is adding – a, a little bit of weight to that first line, a bigger player. Maybe even if it's just switching a guy like Jake Gensel and and and, and um, Jason Zucker, uh, I'm open to suggestions here. Or maybe you guys just think, hey, it's fucked. Let's keep it the way it is, and we'll see where we go from there. Taylor?
2: I mean, if they had the – I don't think there's anyone in, in-house who could add more – really physicality and still play on that first line and contribute um, and do it well. Zucker is bigger, but he's not, you know, like a physical player. He's not um, that intimidating of a a player. They really, the guys who they have, who play that way or bottom six guys who you're not going to put on Crosby's line. So uh, they'd have to turn to the outside. And I mean, at this point in the season, I don't know who they would get, who who's still available. Um, they don't have any cap space, and uh, it would have to come like via trade, I think.
1: Okay. Dave, last year, and we've, we've discussed this before, you watched Jeff Carter play, and Jeff Carter got anywhere he wanted to on the ice. Uh, oldest player on the team, but had no problems getting anywhere he wanted to in front of the net, down the slot against the Islanders, uh, tough team to play against. Is there someone else on this lineup that, that could help that could help Crosby in that way. And I'm thinking more toward the playoffs. I don't really care. I think they're going to be a playoff team anyway or close to being a playoff team. Would you consider it, or are you in Taylor's camp? Just keep kind of keep it the way it is because there's not a natural person to put there.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly not inside the organization. There isn't. And, you know, both Gensel and Rust, have proven that they can produce in, in the playoffs. Obviously players get older, you know, circumstances change or whatever, but if memory serves Gensel had 23 goals, uh, during his first two playoff runs, which was like 35 to 38 games, something in that neighborhood. Uh, he's only had three playoff goals in the last three playoffs uh, which certainly is not uh, what's expected of him, but you know he has proven that he he can produce in those high stakes games. And you know Rust for a long time had a reputation as a you know big game player, a, a guy who produced in clutch situations. So if if either or both of his wingers had a history of uh, fizzling in the playoffs, then then yeah, I'd I'd consider maybe some uh, experimentation, but a- as it is, I really don't see a need to, uh, to tamper with the, the top line. And, uh, you know, even though you would expect more productivity from that unit than than you got in the Islander series, I still think, you know, they would have, uh, beaten New York in the first round
1: if they had had average or better goaltending. Right. Uh, I agree with the sense that all three of those players are terrific players. I really, am, uh, Crosby goes without saying, uh, Jake Gensel has been a really good player. And as you mentioned, Rust has had some really good playoffs, big games. I just don't know if that group together has been working very well in the playoffs the last couple of years. Point taken on the goaltending. I think we all agree on that. I'm just uh, throwing something out there. I do wonder, with Crosby getting a little bit older, if there is a way to maybe try to incorporate Uh, Someone up there to help him a little bit, uh, to take some of the load off of him and allow him to kind of still play the game where we now see him playing so well. I don't want to say on the periphery, but certainly a little bit. He's not the guy that's driving the net with the the reckless abandon that we saw him earlier in his career. And hey, he's 34 years old. Give the guy a break. I mean, he's even superstars uh, get a little bit older. But,
2: they they got chances in the playoffs. I mean, Gensel led the team in shots in the playoffs. Um, and the first line as a unit, they were getting scoring chances, shots on goal at a higher rate than they did in the regular season, and, like, high-danger chances. So they were going, like, in the playoffs more often, like, going to the net and getting those high-danger chances. They just weren't going in. And yeah. I mean, they were go- up against really tough goaltending in the first round. So, I mean, they... They didn't slow down in that area in the playoffs.
0: All right. And you, th- you mentioned Carter,
1: I think, as a candidate. You know, oh, I don't know if a candidate, I just I just as someone I saw that was able to play that way who to Taylor's point earlier, and I guess it didn't make this well, that we don't think of Jeff Carter as being a physical player either. But 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 he can get anywhere he wants. But go ahead, Dave. Uh no, just that I mean
0: if you want to assume that Malkin won't be available at the start of the season uh if, if in fact you would bump Carter up to presumably the right side with uh with Crosby, then you really would be a, a one line team at least offensively yeah yeah,
1: yeah no, good points uh okay let's let's move along here uh with each show here in the summer we've been trying to take a look at different players and evaluate uh, their seasons and evaluate their future kind of here in the organization. And today the wheel stops on Chad Ruriedel, uh, 31-year-old uh, defenseman uh, for the club, uh, kind of a plug-in guy, uh, last season seven games, uh, no goals, uh, two assists. Uh, but the organization thought at least enough of him to bring him back uh, for another season. Taylor, what are your thoughts on this guy, uh, on, on uh value to the team, as a depth defenseman.
2: Yeah, he actually he played seventeen games last year. Yeah, but, yes, I mean. uh, yeah. He, uh, yeah, I mean he's he's great depth to have. He's someone who can um, sit out for you know a while, while if you know that he's not needed, and then come in and still be effective. He's cheap. He's been on league minimum like almost his entire career. Um, yeah he's on league minimum 750000 He's So, I mean, he's not keeping anyone off the roster. Um, He's not, you know, preventing them from doing anything else. Uh, Yeah, he's a good depth option to have. When he came in, he was effective. He can play on the left side, too. He did that a little bit last season for a handful of games when the Penguins were really hurting on the left side. Um, So, yeah, that versatility helps. Um, He's been around a while. I remember there was a game. It was, like, the first game against the Capitals they played last season, and he was in the lineup and it was pretty early in the game and he like went one-on-one with like Ovechkin twice and like shut him down. Um, and I was like, I gifted it and I was like sending it to my friend that works for the Caps. And I was like, do you think Chad's going to win the Norris? Like, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he has those moments. Um, good depth option have no, no uh, issue with bringing him back.
0: Dave. No, I mean, I don't see any downside to, uh, to him, not, in terms of what he's paid, not in terms of what he can do for you on the ice. I think it is a talent of sorts to be able to be out of the lineup for weeks at a time yeah. and, you know, get back in and perform, you know, at the level that would be expected if you had been playing the whole time. Um, I, you know, I, I think he's a, he's a very nice insurance policy,
1: uh, versatile piece for, for them to have on their depth chart. Yeah, and I think you guys both raised the, the excellent point of, there's that is a hard that is a hard role to play, and a lot of times it takes a veteran uh, to kind of accept that. Uh, you know, when you're when you're coming up in the from the minors anymore, it seems like teams want the the want guys playing. They don't want guys sitting on the bench or last year sitting on a taxi squad. We even saw that with Pio Joseph after he came back out of the lineup. You didn't want to sit him around. You want and even in,
2: that for the I mean, for the right side, the Penguins also just don't really have any young guys who
1: could right. do that. <laughs> like no, no. Uh, but, but my point is that, that with young players, you don't want them doing that. You want a guy like Ruedel who has been around. They it it does take it does take something to be able to sit out a long time, long stretches, and go in and play pretty well. So yeah, you, you to your point, Taylor. I, I know what you're saying, but I was just trying to kind of amplify yeah. your guys's point that it does uh it, it, there are guys around the league that the, and and it is a i don't know if it's a talent but just the ability to step in after long stretches and and give give the team very serviceable performance
2: yeah i yeah i mean, like <laughs> i get what you're saying but yeah the they're only really right-handed prospects who are like in Wilkes or Josh Mascalco Will Riley neither of them close to being ready to coming up anyway. So, yeah, you need someone like Chad. Uh, Taylor Fidun, who they signed, uh, what, on the first uh, – one of the first days of free agency. He, he's a right-handed, you know, veteran guy, too, who has NHL experience. So, he's someone, you know, you could end up seeing, too. But, um, yeah, no issues with Chad. All
1: right. All right, we'll be back here in a second here on the, 20, on the 66 to 87 podcast. We'll get to our roundtable segment. Also, we'll be mentioning uh, the passing of Tony – Esposito, the great uh, Blackhawks goalie also serves as a very short, a very short time here uh, as the general manager. We're also going to get into the bottom six uh, and ask our beat writers what their level of comfort is uh, with this group heading into training camp here coming up in about a month. Stick with us. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast and it's round table time, which as most of you have figured out by this point, not really different, a whole lot different from the first segment, but we like to give it a fancy name. Anyway, uh, we started the show talking about with our beat writers, what they would do with the first line, keep it the same, maybe move some pieces around, And I think the the, the, the unanimous consensus was there's not a good person to kind of Crosby because you don't have a person that fits the maybe giving them some more size, a little bit more weight. So for now, it's going to stay the way it is because there is not an in-house candidate to move up to to the first line. I would guess these guys are going to say they're a little bit happier with the bottom six i know dave you wrote about this a week or two ago i can't remember if it was just in a normal story that you wrote or part of the friday insider which i hope people always get a chance to read about how they've kind of repopulated this group obviously losing brandon tanoff uh jared mccann also on his way out uh but there are some good there's some decent options here that, that they have brought in certainly uh Brock McGinn being a person we've already talked about. And then today, Taylor wrote about, um, uh, uh, Denton, Denton Heinen. Uh, I want to get your guys' thoughts on where you guys are with your comfort level with, with the bottom six here about a month out from training camp. Uh, Taylor.
2: I mean, it feels like a downgrade, um, especially when you consider Carter's probably not going to be in the bottom six to start, um. But, I mean, if you're looking at Heinen as a replacement for McCann and McGinn as a replacement for Tanev, I, I think both um, are downgrades. I think uh, talk Heinen, you know, he, he does have that uh, offensive upside that, you know, Hexal mentioned is one of the reasons they went after him. He had a really good season um, in 2017-18. That season with Boston, um, 40, what, it was like 40-something points uh, 16 goals, 31 assists uh, when he was at the Bruins that year. Um, but then since then, he's just kind of been declining um, offensively, uh, defensively, looking at, like, his impact, nothing that exceptional. So, uh, I mean, if he can, you know, put together the numbers he did in 2017-18, that's great. But um, otherwise, otherwise, it it, it just seems like a step down from can.
0: Dave, where are you with this group? I mean, I – Basically uh, agree with Taylor. I, you know, I, I, we don't know. You know, there are a lot, a lot of questions here. We don't know who will play with whom. You know exactly how they will reconfigure the uh, <clears throat> the bottom two lines with uh, with the people they lost and, and added uh, after the end of last season. Um, I like McGinn. I, you know, I, I think. He, he was a, a good addition, uh, certainly not the same player that Tanev is, but, you know, who is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I kind of lost track of Heinen when he was with Anaheim. Uh, apparently, I didn't miss much. Uh, <laughs> I, I liked him. I thought he was a pretty capable player in uh, when he was with the Bruins. Um, I expected him you know, at, at that time, based on the trajectory of his career to be more of an impact player than he appears to be uh, at this stage. But, you know, it could be that he will uh, will benefit from a, a change of scenery and perhaps even show that he's uh, capable of playing above the third line. I think that's a little too much to hope for at this point. But, you know, we should probably wait and see exactly exactly how these guys fit in, you know, before we uh, pass any serious judgment on them.
1: I would, I would would say one thing. I I don't think, I think Anaheim, which has been such a good franchise for a long time and they, they all go through cycles. It just seems like uh, right now, Anaheim just seems like people go in there and and I have no idea what happens to them anymore. Mm -hmm. I completely lose track of them. In fact, I think that's how, am I correct here? That is, and that Who who came back from Anaheim, from the Rangers, to Pittsburgh to win a Stanley Cup? It was uh, – oh, my Carl, goodness. Carl Hagelin? Carl Hagelin. Carl Hagelin <laughs> went to Anaheim and became – it was like in the Federal Witness Protection Program. You had no idea he was there. Uh, Pittsburgh brings him back, and he looks just like the same player that he played with the Rangers. At Real impact. So I'm going to give – I'm going to give Heinen a break on that one yeah. just because – He,
2: he – he. You played on like their top line for you know a, a fair amount of games last season. Um, he left wing and right wing. Uh, he, I mean, he was on Getzloff's line for a bit. His most frequent line mates were um, Adam Henrique and Jacob Silverberg. Um, yeah. but I mean, wherever he was playing, his they deployed him against you know like top t- like opponents, um, you know, top players. I I, I talked about it in the story, but. Um, his most frequent forward opponents um, that he was on the ice at the same time with it was Laine, McKinnon, and Rantanen. Um, you know the Avalanche and uh, Schmaltz and Garland, the Coyotes' top line. Um, but yeah, those those two players and whoever the third was uh, was rotating out. But I mean, they were putting him out there against like good players. So um, yeah, yeah. So I that's encouraging. And then even like I, I have the chart, you know. Um, the last three years together, he was in like the 80th uh, percentile for quality of competition, but, uh, in the lower third for quality of teammates. So he wasn't really playing with anyone that great, but they, he was, you know, being deployed against, uh, opponents who who were good. Yeah.
1: Thus, the Anaheim Ducks <laughs> again. Yeah. We have just absolutely again nothing. No, and, and every franchise goes through through it. Look, every franchise goes through it, and it, it it's weird how it has happened over the last couple years to those three California teams. I think Los Angeles is, to me seems like the closest to kind of maybe getting back to something good, but oh, Anaheim, oh my goodness, San Jose is the same way, just almost. Whew. Frightening. So I, I, I do. I think I, to, to both of you as this point earlier. I, I liked Heinen, when he, who was in Boston, and definitely to Dave's point. I lost track of him, and then when I then you know reading your story today reminded me. Oh yes, he was in Anaheim. That this is explains it. So uh, we'll we'll and, see. Go as ahead, far as the
2: yeah, as far as like the bottom six, he's he's not a very physical player. So if anyone was expecting that um, to be added to the bottom six, that, that's just not his game. Um, I, I I had like the rate of hits at, at, at five on five in there. Um, it, the the rate he was hitting was a comparison, you know, to like a Penguins player. It was most comparable to Rust and Kapanen, who like not very physical players. Um, he does block um, a lot of shots for a forward, though. Uh, the rate he blocked um, only two Penguins forwards last season blocked shots at a higher rate than he did, and it was Colton Savior and Tanev. Um, so I mean, I guess that's good. Uh, and very low rate of giveaways. Um, so he's responsible, but, uh, still step down from, from McCann, if that's what they're looking for.
1: I'll ask you both. We'll start with Dave. Any, is there any thought, uh, Dave, I, and I know part of the answer is w- wait and see, but any thought at all to this, the two young junior players, prospects that they like so much forwards have any crack uh, at the bottom six this year? Wait and see. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that either of them has a game that that really is made for a, a bottom six role. I think you know they project top six, uh, you know, possibly middle six. I guess um, yeah. we don't know whether either you know is going to be ready to to step into the NHL. I mean, that seems like still a a bit too much to to expect at, at this stage of their development, especially coming off you know, the strange past season plus that, that guys have had, uh, that certainly couldn't have, uh, been good for their development. Um, I think they'll be given an opportunity, Yeah, but you know, they, they will have to be the best among equals, you know, right. to, uh, to merit keeping over guys, you know, the Penguins have, I want to say it's 14 forwards on one way contracts. Um, So, you know, when, when a guy's on a one way that gives him a, a built in advantage over, over somebody who, who has a two way, especially if it's a, a younger player who can, who can be sent to Wilkes-Barre without having to go through waivers. Yeah. Taylor.
2: Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think so. Not to start, uh, like Dave said, neither of them, that's not really their role. Um, And coming from the, you know, you have to be responsible defensively to, to be there. And they're both coming – I mean, they're coming from the same really strong team, the QMJHL, a league that's not really known for uh, defensive play. And they're coming, like, from a team who possesses the puck more often than not. So they re- they haven't had to play, like, a lot of really hard defense uh, recently. And I think going from that to the NHL would be a huge shock. Uh, I don't think it would go well. You don't want to see them getting limited minutes. They need to be in Wolkesbury playing um, – I mean, Drew, Drew O'Connor, I, 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 I'd like to see him in that role after seeing him in, in Wilkes-Barre. He's more likely. I mean, the Horner, they have the Horner still. Uh, he can play center and wing. Uh, he's an option for the bottom six. Anthony Angelo, Sam Lafferty. Um, they have enough guys who have uh, experience. Um, and then even if you're looking at guys who don't have NHL experience yet but have professional experience, I mean, I think Bellarive style-wise is the closest comparison they have to Tanev. Um, so I, I just think there are a lot of options they'd have to go through before they'd get to, um, uh, you know, one of Pouin or, or Le Gray. And then even Dominic Simone, I still think Dominic Simone's going to end up in wilkes He cleared waivers last season. He should clear waivers again, no problem. Um, but given, you know, how he was used and here was here last time, I think even him, uh, would be a, a better option to start than in or Le Gray.
1: Taylor, I can't believe we just finished this segment on the bottom six, and not a single mention of Johnny Hockey. Oh how quickly Freddie hockey. hockey, how quickly they forget. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. one, one last thing. And Taylor just mentioned it, and Dave, I've heard this from the time I started covering hockey in the, in the early 90s. Why do they not play defense in the queue? Well what, what's going on in the queue? What's going on in the Maritimes and in Quebec that they just don't play defense up there?
0: I think they want to uh, develop all those great goaltenders like Martin Brodour oh. Fleury and uh, you know so uh, by putting them out there uh, kind of leaving them completely defenseless uh, <laughs> you, you really develop their abilities. I don't know I, I you know I, I think uh, you know it might be that th- there's seems to be more of an emphasis put on Offensive creativity, um, just among French Canadian players, if I can make that kind of grotesque generalization, um, you know, that might have something to do with it. You, you know, where, where there's more of a, uh, an emphasis that's placed on, you know, developing individual talents and skills than, than there is, you know, uh, tending to the, um, uh, details of the game but yeah i mean th- there's no question that you don't uh, normally see a whole lot of uh, well-developed defensive players coming out of the quebec league
2: daniel sprung example <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's turned it around but like the first time he was here if you remember like, uh he's a good example of that <laughs>
1: That's, it's it is it is bizarre how how different the different leagues or sometimes different conferences in sports develop this reputation and it's hard to lose uh, maybe you don't want to lose it of course the great off uh, to mention to, to Dave's point so many great offensive players of course two of the, the two best in this franchise history came out of the queue so we all love the queue no problem with the queue all right um, on a different note uh, Phil uh, Tony Esposito uh, the, the long-time uh, great goaltender uh, for the Blackhawks and very short-time uh, general manager of the these Penguins uh, passed away here on Tuesday. He was 78 years old. Uh, no question about his legacy as a goaltender in the NHL. Uh, terrific with the Blackhawks. Uh, was a guy I was just talking with somebody a little bit earlier today who grew up in Chicago. Uh, worked for the Blackhawks as a kid idolized uh, Tony O, said every kid wanted to be Tony O when they were growing up playing street hockey. Uh, I would think that his legacy here is a little more mixed uh, as in his very brief time with the the Penguins as GM uh, came in in 88, 89. Hey, that's the team that went to the, the first really team that went to the playoffs with Lemieux, won around, beat the Rangers, ended up losing in seven games Gino Bracco was the coach. Taylor, when I read that, I, I thought she had to make a mistake. That, that, that was not Jeannie Bracco. Sure enough, it was. But then it all kind of comes crashing down in the middle of the next season that kind of brings in the next wave. And, of course, Craig Patrick, we know what he's meant to the franchise. Dave, you were covering those teams. What do you remember about the Tony O days, uh, brief as they may be, in Pittsburgh? Well, he was certainly a better goaltender than he was a
0: GM <laughs> Um, as I recall him telling the story at the time when he received the call, the initial call from the Penguins, I want to say that it came from the then owner, Edward J. DeBartolo. Uh, but uh, Esposito said that when the Penguins called him he, and were talking about a job, he thought they wanted him to be a scout. And actually, they wanted him <laughs> to come in and be the general manager. I think he probably would have been more qualified. He certainly would have been more qualified to be a scout than he would have been to be a GM, <laughs> since he had no front office experience that I'm aware of to that point. Um, you know, he he oversaw two drafts. Uh, the Penguins' first rounders in, in those years were Jamie Eward and Darren Shannon. Uh, Both Mm. went on to have pretty fair careers. Uh, Neither of them did much in Pittsburgh. In Darren Shannon's case, it was because he was part of the package that that went to Buffalo uh, for Tom Barrasso. Sure. uh, Which, you know, uh, that was probably the most memorable move that uh, Esposito made uh, for whatever issues anyone has with with Tom Barrasso. He certainly gave them some, some quality goaltending and was a major contributor to the franchise's first two Stanley cups. Uh, I believe they also drafted Mark Recchi in the fourth round during, uh, I believe it was Esposito's first draft. So I don't know how much a GM uh, should be credited or blamed for draft choices, but you know, he does uh, hire the scouts and if the scouts uh, turn up a gem like Recchi proved to be, then, uh, I think at least uh, some of the, the credit and glory should be reflected onto the GM.
1: Taylor, your thoughts? I mean, you, you had obviously had to do some mm-hmm. research for this. I'm not going to ask you any of your memories <laughs> of that, of the, of that <laughs> short time. But are you, any thoughts on, on, on Esposito in his, his short time here?
2: Yeah, yeah, I did look into the, the story, like Dave mentioned, um, drafted recce, uh, Barrasso, the, the biggest trade he made. Um, he acquired Wendell Young, too, who was around. I, I have, like, the full list of trades up. Um, Wendell Young, who was around, you know, during the cup years, too. Uh, other than that, not, not a whole lot of two notable guys. Um, Dineen, Scott Bukestad. Uh, Tim Tukey. like the last move he made was the draft pick to a to that they used to draft Ian Moran. So, um, but yeah, Barasso, definitely the biggest move. Um, but Wendell Young, I, so good, good moves to get goaltenders. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah I mean his time was short but he did uh, that year they returned to the playoffs for the first time in six years not making it
1: that was a good um, team too I mean and again he didn't he didn't have anything really to do with it other than we mentioned with with Barasso but but that was a pretty good team we've we, we've had we've had guests on here talking about you know and that was the kind of the team that you could I thought the first time you could see hey there's there's a chance here these guys could win the cup
2: well, uh, and they they swept the Rangers that year. That, oh, in that, in I'm aware. Round. Yeah, well, and oh. what his his brother was the Phil Esposito was the team of the Rangers. And, oh, like,
1: don't see why did you have Phil to remind got,
2: me of Phil this? Got, I know I was going to say Phil got fired. So if he didn't anything. Anyway, oh, oh, dead oh dead I'm dead aware.
0: And <laughs> that series, if I can inject a personal note, that Ranger series gave me one of my most memorable playoff moments when late in game four as the penguins were about to complete the sweep in new york the madison square garden crowd started to chant we suck we suck (laughs) 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 which i i mean i don't think anybody was disputing that uh but it was the first time i had heard a uh a home crowd turn on a team quite that way so it uh it made quite an impression. And that team, uh, you know, uh, that Penguin team, let's not forget, it, in the second round, they were up 3-2 on yep. the Flyers. And, yep. uh, and no Hexie for Game 7, right? Exactly. Ken Reggett got the call for the Flyers in Game 7 at the, at the Civic Arena and won the game. And all of the uh, balloons, I want to say they were black and gold, uh, stayed in the rafters that night. They were scheduled to drop when the Penguins clinched their berth in the third round, which didn't happen wow. for two more years.
1: Yeah, wow, that's good stuff. I, I, Genie briaco I'm still my mind still can't, I can't wrap around the fact that he was the coach of that team.
0: Mine uh, too.
1: <laughs> when we come back, we will be joined by voice of the. On the TV side, Steve Mears. Stay with
3: us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com.
1: Uh, Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast. And as promised, we are joined by the voice of the Penguins, the television voice of the Penguins. Steve Mears does a great job calling the games. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us today. And I I don't think we could start with any other question than just your impressions of Mike Lang. And and we've gotten a lot of uh, feedback from, Certainly, different people you read stuff, even Sidney Crosby, Mary Lemieux, people weighing in on his impact. But as a broadcaster, as someone who does the same thing uh, that he has done so well for many years, what did you appreciate?
3: Well, there's so many things. Uh, I, I could go on and on, and, and also from so many different perspectives. First of all, as a fan growing up in Murraysville, Penguin fan, and just wanting to be like him. I was like a whole generation of kids who raced to finish their homework and wanted to be right there in front of the TV or the radio, 7 o'clock, just to listen to him. So there's that perspective. Later on, there would be uh, meeting him. I was with the Islanders when I first met him, and he was always very supportive, sharing information. And uh, any time I had a question during one of those Penguin Islander morning skates, he was always so gracious with his time. And then later on, I worked for Penguins Radio and now Penn's TV. And he's just become this great mentor. And he still is, still will be. Uh, Anytime I have a question, whether it's about the nuts and bolts of broadcasting or about anything else, career advice, anything else, he has always been so incredibly gracious and willing to help out and share all these pearls of wisdom. And that's where I can just go on and on about all these little things that he's taught me, whether it's like how to prepare for a game seven or uh, identifying players, just all the X's and O's, and the, just the, the, uh, the intricacies of doing play-by-play. Play. He's always been so helpful to me. So uh, I'll always appreciate that. Uh, he, he took me under his wing whenever I was starting with Penguins Radio. And and uh, any time I had a question, he was always willing to answer it. So uh, I'll always be, be grateful. But the, there were so many things that made him great. It was uh, his voice. His preparation, his anticipation, his excitement level, and, of course, his famous catchphrases. So you put that all together, I think you've got one of the greatest sportscasters, not just hockey play-by-play guys, but one of the greatest sportscasters of all time.
1: Steve, I would think it would be easy for a kid, like you said, growing up, listening to him, uh, eventually wanting to kind of do the same thing, to fall into a trap of trying to sound like my idol or sound, sound like a guy who was an idol to a lot of fans here and yet listening to you anyone that listens to you knows that you're not Mike Lang and I don't mean that and I don't mean that in a I mean that in a complimentary way and that you have got your own style as you were coming up and coming into the Pittsburgh market were you aware of that did you like I've got to be myself I'm not gonna you don't do many catchphrases or stuff like that how was how did you approach that
3: Uh, Yeah, I think the worst thing you could do is imitate or steal or have something that's contrived to be like Mike Lang, because then you're inauthentic. And one of the great things about him is that everything he did and all of his catchphrases were authentic. There's a story behind every one of his famous catchphrases. I don't think people realize that. So it's not like he's just rambling on about nonsense after Penguin Goals. There's a purpose and a method to his madness. And uh, I do think if... For example, when I did my first Penguin game on TV, I saw uh, Malkin scores and I said, oh, sweet sassy Mo Lassie, that's a Penguin goal. But like, that would be the worst thing you could possibly do because it's contrived and it's inauthentic and it's forced. And I'm not against anything, uh, like whether it's a colorful catchphrase, but it's got to be organic. And uh, Mike's catalog, of course, is four and a half decades. I'm not even four years into this. So uh, <laughs> it takes quite a while to, I think, to build that, that catalog of his. But, uh, yeah, you have to have your own style. There's there's no question about it. Uh, I just think there's only one Mike Lang, and uh, there will never be another one. So uh, the, the best thing you could do, though, is just take the things that you can control and the things that he's taught me. And the, the biggest one would be the preparation, uh, the work ethic, all of those intangibles. I think some of those uh, broadcasting X's and O's that he's taught me, I can take that and I can apply it. To uh, to the job that I'm doing here right now, but it's a it's a work in progress. I guess we're all works in progress in whatever field we're working in. So uh, I consider myself that, and uh, I just try to be a sponge. Any any time I was around him, and I'll continue to do that, whether I'm texting with him or if we see him at the rink, I'm just always trying to be a sponge around him.
1: Steve, one thing, one last thing on on the, on the broadcasting for me is one thing. As you're coming up, you're 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 never expecting to broadcast in a pandemic. Uh, which forces you to get out of the broadcast booth and work in a studio where covering a game that travels at 80 miles an hour. I, I really thought that you did a nice job of keeping up with plays and keeping up with goals because when you watch some broadcasts around the league with guys in that really unenviable position of trying to make sure the puck went in the net, it's a goal, it wasn't a goal. I thought you did a, you and Bob did a nice job. How did you overcome having to deal with not being a lot of times in the place where the game was being played.
3: Well, I was lucky that I had done it before with uh, at least three world juniors that I did. They were from a studio. Anytime the world juniors were in Europe, we did not travel overseas. So I had a lot of experience of doing some games and some big games. I I did uh, one gold, yeah, one gold medal game from a studio and a bunch of other games in uh, over the course of three world juniors, Uh, from a studio, whether it was in uh, an NHL network studio or a remote studio that we had in Denver, Colorado, we would be there. So I had a lot of experience doing it. And uh, in some ways it does simplify everything because all you can see is what is being shown by the camera and that main cameraman at center ice. So it simplifies things, but there's no question you do lose your peripheral vision. You lose the ability to see when the goaltender's being pulled, when the trail referee has his arm up in the air calling a penalty, what's going on at the bench, when there's a skirmish behind the play. We had a secondary monitor in our studio, but that was tough to bounce back and forth from. It was also a very wide shot. So uh, there's no doubt, in addition to missing the energy of the building and the crowd and the interaction with the players, I mean there were a lot of challenges along the way, but I thought we did a, a nice job of making the best of out a, of a tough situation, and hopefully we never, ever have to do that again. But it was uh, it was a unique experience. I, I think it's just one of those things that just makes you better as a broadcaster.
2: Steve, switching gears uh, you know, to the Penguins, just what are your impressions of the offseason moves they've made so far?
3: Well, the f- common theme seems to be the salary cap and uh, the lack of potential moves. If they had any desire to make any type of drastic change, it seems like being handcuffed by the salary cap situation isn't going to allow it. Uh, I've always liked Brock McGinn. I think uh, he's an aggressive player and plays in all three zones well. Does a lot of good things well. Very well-rounded player. I don't know if he's a straight-up replacement for Brandon Tanev. And that's going to be a question the Penguins have to answer, I think, in general. One of the things that I'm looking at here is uh, two years ago was Patrick Hornquist. Now this offseason losing Brandon Tanev. And Cody Ceci, too, who's a, a big body so I wonder about the grit factor, and now we see the game, whether we like it or not, it's trending toward a head back to a heavier type style. I look at Tampa's defense, just monsters on the blue line. I look at St. Louis, their defense two years ago, and just uh, loaded with size and uh, a lot of heavy defensemen. I think that was a big part of their success. Obviously, you have to have speed and skill, and Tampa and St. Louis certainly had that but we're starting to see a trend where it's getting back to that heavy style. Penalty calls start to disappear in the playoffs. So I wonder, are the Penguins going to have that element, enough of that element to compete with the likes of some of those teams that I mentioned? You see the Rangers getting tougher. Islanders are always tough to play against when you look at the Metropolitan Division. So uh, that that's one thing. The grit factor and trying to bring some of those players. And I think Brock McGinn can bring some of that element. But will it be enough? As the Penguins have lost some key players that have some abrasiveness and some physicality to them.
2: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh Cody Stacey. I was going back looking at, you know, like the social media reactions from when they first signed him and it was like, oh, oh God, this is awful. And then, you know, when he leaves, it's like the same kind of reaction, like, Oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> how how big do you think that uh, you know, loss will prove to be? Because I mean they did, you know, add two forwards to for replace you know tanev and mccann but uh cc it looks like you know they, they don't have the cap space really we'll go out and sign someone to replace him
3: right that's that's the issue as i said it's uh that's where in a salary cap world and you got some high priced players you got some lengthy contracts it's tricky and it's it's hard to do i'm sure ron hextall and brian burke they'd love to make some uh greater moves or if it was available and it made sense but it just isn't possible but I give Cody Cece a lot of credit, and I tweeted about that reaction when people were just so up in arms when Cody Cece was signed. I and mean, to his credit, he went out and had a resurgent year. And I, I think for him, it benefited getting out of Ottawa and Toronto, Ottawa being his hometown, played there. And, and, you know, obviously it's a smaller market, but it's still Canada, and it's still a lot of scrutiny there. We know what Toronto is in the fishbowl of Toronto, and he struggled – uh, two years ago in Toronto, but uh, to his credit, put the work in, very consistent, brought some of that edge and that physicality that I talked about, and uh, was a good puck mover, underrated puck mover. I didn't know that was a, a big part of his uh, his repertoire and uh, did a great job for the Pens. So it's a tough loss. There's no way they're going to keep him, not those salary numbers. And one of the strangest things, at least for us, is that he has come to Pittsburgh and now left and we never met him. That's the that's the weird thing with the end. Uh, you know, like same thing like we haven't I've yet to meet Mike Matheson or uh, yeah, like any of the other guys who came in came on board. Freddie Goudreau came and went, you know. So uh, that is weird. That's that's we like, we called all his games and we were like espousing all these great plays that he made and. And uh, felt like we, we knew these guys, but here's Cody Cece because we didn't have the access. As you guys know, we didn't have the access, weren't in the locker room as we normally would be. And you get an opportunity to get to know these guys a little bit. Obviously, we weren't traveling with the team on the team plane or being in the team hotel. So it's kind of bizarre that uh, this guy, a few of them, came into Pittsburgh. We called their games and now they're somewhere else.
2: That's how I feel about Pio Joseph. I mean, because he was at that camp, you know, the year before, but I never talked to him then. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's played in the NHL. I've I've done like maybe like 10, 15 phone interviews with him, total or Zoom. Uh, pretty significant player. Never talked to him.
3: Yeah. I did meet Cody Ceci the day he was drafted. We were doing the draft NHL radio broadcast, which, of course, was in Pittsburgh the same draft that had Mike Matheson and Mark Jankowski and uh, Andre Vasilevsky. You go back and you look at some of the great players in, in that draft. And I'm sure I interviewed him on NHL Network back in the yeah. day, but uh, it is a bit bizarre. And that's one of the things we really missed. it. And you guys all know about that. The best stuff you get is off the record, away from yeah. the microphones, away from the cameras. Sure, it's nice. And the team did a great job of just giving access and, and uh, making the best of a tough situation. But we all know the best information, especially for a broadcast and and things that I can use as far as stories and background and and off the record items, those happen when you're having a a one-on-one conversation in the locker room, away from the media scrum, away from the microphones and the cameras. And and it was a shame that we didn't have the opportunity to do that. Hopefully we can get back and uh, get an opportunity to get to know these guys a little bit better and then bring those stories uh, even to a greater extent, to uh, the audience out there.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, Steve, you mentioned a while ago your your time with the Islanders. How did you end up on the island, and how did your time there affect you as your you know your development, your maturation as a broadcaster?
3: And it was a great stepping stone. Uh, it was a great stepping stone job in the NHL or an entry into the NHL. Uh, I was so fortunate. I was working at the time in bozier shreveport louisiana i was the voice of the bozier Street Port Mudbugs. that's right that's the team the old central hockey league now they're a junior team in the nhl but um uh, actually fantastic hockey market they love the game down there in shreveport louisiana wonderful hockey fans southern hospitality great people so i had an amazing four years there just starting out in pro hockey and then along the way i had heard through the grapevine that bridgeport the ahl affiliate of the islanders they're Radio job was open, so I really started to go after that, and I was getting in a foot into the door there and, and making strides. I was getting closer to this Bridgeport job, and as I'm doing that, the Islanders job opens up. And uh, so it's just a, a confluence of just timing, luck, and uh, John Wideman left from the Islanders to Chicago, where he still is with the radio voice of the Blackhawks, and that just timing, it just worked out. They were looking for somebody probably young that they didn't have to pay all that much, and uh, they liked something in me, so they offered me the job. It was That was my dream job. I thought I was going to be there for possibly my whole career. I was I was very happy, but uh, they eventually went to a simulcast and got rid of the radio broadcast to save money, but uh, it was a great start to the NHL life, and I, I was just reminiscing about and we talk about meeting Mike Lang. The first time I met him was October 2006. I was a rookie broadcaster with the Islanders, and so nervous, the first Islander-Penguin game of the year, so it was a big deal for me. And there he is. I see him all the way down at the other end, the infamous hallway of Nassau Coliseum, where the dressing rooms are. And he, as Bill Burke would say, he rolled in like the fog. He came in with his big green trench coat on, and he just sauntered his way down that famous hallway and walked up and I uh, introduced myself. He said, oh, yeah, I heard about you. Nice to meet you. And uh, he couldn't have been kinder and uh, was just really friendly and, and that just started the relationship but it was it was funny that I had it felt like I had known him for 20 years. I had never met him but it felt like he was a teacher and he was family and he, he kind of was because uh, I had been listening to him for two decades and uh, he just he was my mentor so everything he did I was always following from the time I was 10 years old. I was always listening to him, not just as a fan, but as someone who wanted to get into this business. So I was studying him and then to meet him for the first time in person in that uh, hallway in Nassau Coliseum in 2006. And he was larger than life. So I was starstruck. But uh, he's become a great friend.
0: Are there any other broadcasters around the league that uh, kind of were, were mentors to you or people that you really looked up to? Uh, not necessarily tried to copy, but you know to to learn from, to to see what worked for them, uh, that sort of thing?
3: No question. Uh, there, and there are so many great ones. I mean, Doc Emmerich is the one that comes to mind. We have a Bowling Green connection too, so we've always had that. We have the Love of the Pirates connection as well, so we've always had that uh, between the two of us and something to talk about when we, when we saw each other at different rinks. So uh, that would be an obvious one, but there, there are just so many. I, when I go to New York there with that Islander job, you think about it, I've got Sam Rosen and Kenny Albert doing the Rangers. I've got Doc doing the Devils. I'm working with Howie Rose, who's doing Islanders TV, and my partner, Chris King, who's still doing Islanders radio and is a gr- great dear friend. So I'm just surrounded by all of these tremendous influences. And, uh, and I have a lot to learn. You get in, I was 26 years old, and I you think, because you're a big fish in a small pond, you think you you know everything, and, and oh, I'm big in Shreveport, Louisiana, so I'm going to go to New York, and what, what's going to be the difference, right? And uh, that's laughable to look back at now, but I had a lot to learn, and all those guys, they just shared so much. Doc Emmerich, I mean, he would share a 100 notes before a game, and uh, I might have one to give him about the Islanders. He would have just one thing after another, and then, of course, afterward, he would say, Steve, thank you for your time. I was like, thank me for my time. You're Doc Emmerich. You just gave me everything I'm going to use for the broadcast tonight. But we know Doc and just how incredibly kind he is. I uh, learned a lot from Howie Rose, who uh, does Mets radio now, doesn't do Islanders TV anymore. But uh, there's a reason why all of these guys, and Mike Lang included, why they get to where they're at. Because they're professional. Not only are they talented on the air, but they treat people the way they want to be treated. It's just the, it's so basic. It's so easy, but I've met a lot of people. I remember in the minors, I met a lot of people who, who couldn't figure that out. They might've had the talent, but uh, either were sloppy or, or unprofessional or rude or whatever it was. Uh, It's just like such a common, easy to do thing. Just treat people kindly and act professionally. And it's amazing what you'll be able to accomplish. So there's no surprise to me when I see the longevity of Sam Rosen and Doc Emmerich and Mike Lang, It's first and foremost because they're great people.
1: Uh, Wrap this up with with this question, uh, Steve, and we'll stay on the broadcast uh, side of it. Uh, I think every city has their share of great announcers. I'm not sure how many cities Pittsburgh size or even larger have had three almost larger than life figures in a city uh, like Bob Prince, Myron Cope, and, and of course Mike Lang, you think you feel like the the, the, the long listeners uh, have in Pittsburgh have been incredibly spoiled uh, with 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 the the broadcast and just the uh, you know unique uh, uh, deliveries that these guys brought, not just being really good but very 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 unique.
3: No question about it. Yeah, and unique voices too. I mean. All three of them, Myra and Cope, especially, but even Mike Lang. I, I've said it here this week and doing some interviews that I have never heard anyone in any form of broadcasting who sounds like Mike Lang does. It's not your classic baritone, like deep voice like a Jigs McDonald or some of the other great uh, sportscasters over the years. It's it's such a unique voice that I've never heard anyone, radio TV of any kind that sounds like Mike Lang. So that uniqueness was a part of his success. Same thing with the other two guys that you mentioned, Bob Prince and Myron Cope, and uh, and the sound of their voice. In addition to the entertainment value and and uh, the knowledge that they brought to the game. But Mike, uh, yeah, the they all those skills you have to have them. But it, one thing you're hearing a common theme this week is that he he f- had such a feel for the game, and that was so true. The anticipation. And I remember that, watching those games as a kid, and just he would always, oh, oh, let me know, he's got something, He's got an extra hop in his step tonight. He's got a little extra hop in his step. He's got that look in his eye. And sure enough, Mario would have three goals, two assists, and be the number one star. Or uh, he would say, uh, oh, Kevin Stevens, that little extra hop in his step, in the warm-up, In the warm-up, he saw this. And then Stevens would be the best player. I remember a game in Anaheim uh, against the might, then Mighty Ducks. Shaky rookie goalie in net for Anaheim. And uh, right on cue, he said, if the Penguins can just get some pucks, you can see he un- he's unsteady in that crease. Here's Nedved in the slot, shot, score. Penguins lead 2 nothing. Like, on right at that second, you know? So it's that type of anticipation in addition to the usual ebbs and flows of, uh, of a hockey game and building that excitement that he was so good at. But uh, he just had that sixth sense, and it's pretty remarkable for a guy from California who I don't think saw a hockey game until he was in his 20s who never played the sport. I think he's only been on the ice once maybe in his life, if you t- if I remember that correctly. So for someone like that to uh, study the game and to put so much into the craft and to- so much into this city, it's uh, it's amazing what he was able to accomplish. And uh, we're certainly going to miss him, but it's been a wonderful celebration here this week, looking back to all the tremendous moments with Mike lying behind the microphone. And I know I'm going to miss him, but I'm glad he's still going to be around. And, doing some work with penguins radio and if i ever have a question i know i can text them and uh, he'll get right back to me
1: oh, great stuff steve as always uh we appreciate it and that's it for us this week on the 66 to 87 podcast for steve Mears, our guest taylor haas dave molinari this is tom reed we'll talk to you next week on the dk pittsburgh sports podcasting network